All right, good morning, church. Good to see all of you here this morning. Good to hear your voices as uh, we sang God's praises together. We're going to study his word as we continue to worship. So I hope you got a Bible with you. Open it up to the opening uh, book of Genesis. We're going to finish out our study, Genesis 3, beginning in verse... I'm just going to read verse 22. We'll come back and work through the the rest of the text um, moment by moment. But I'm going to start in verse 22. The Lord God said... Since the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, he must not reach out, take from the tree of life, eat, and live forever. So the Lord God sent him away from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove the man out and stationed the cherubim and the flaming, whirling sword east of the garden of Eden to guard the way to the tree of life. So these first three chapters, I hope we've seen this along the way, they are the foundation of everything else in the Bible, and really they are the foundation of the story of God in human history. They set the stage for the rest of human history. Genesis 1 to 3 explains everything. It explains everything that, that it seems good and right in the world because everything that God made was good. It explains everything that is broken and painful in the world because of Genesis 3, pain was injected and the curse was injected into the world after human sin. But here we see the story of exile at the end of chapter three where they're kicked out of the garden. We we all, I think, have experiences in our lives, small experiences in our lives that remind us of this sense of being on the outside, right? This haunting sense that you wanna be inside but you're on the outside looking in. You experience that in so many ways. C.S. Lewis uh, wrote an essay, actually it was an address, to King's College in 1944 which he titled The Inner Ring. And in this address, he he talks about it, describes the common desire to be accepted by some in crowd or or some fellowship, right? This inner ring of whatever group we, uh, matters to us the most at the time. And he talks about how the desire to be in that inner ring can turn us into something that we will eventually not even recognize. Some, a, a version of us that's unrecognizable to ourselves because it, the desire to get in, the craving to get on the inside of the inner ring will make us say things and do things we wouldn't otherwise say or do. In other words, we end up paying any price to not feel excluded. On the other hand, there are moments probably in our lives, small moments, where you do get on the inside, right? You're, you're, you crave to be on the inside, but sometimes there are those moments and we sometimes relive them where it was like, that was me at peak, all right? That was me and I actually arrived. It didn't last for very long, but for just a moment, I arrived in the inner circle, a well-known movie character uh, who won a fight after many losses and he won this fight and then he relives the moment of glory with his friend with these words. He says, do you remember that moment when everyone was shouting my name and I used my strength to rip my blouse, right? And that was Nacho Libre, right? And he's just remembering this moment where, that's the only time I'll probably ever quote Nacho Libre in in the pulpit, right? So I hope, enjoy it while you have it. Um, But there was that moment, right, where he just kept losing and he wanted to win. And then there was that moment where he won and everybody was shouting his name. He was on the inside of that group, right? Uh, This passage, is not a story of being on the inside, it's a story of being ejected, of being evicted, and now they're on the outside looking in. It's a story of exile. And we know why it happened, because we've spent the last two weeks 
exploring this, right? Our first parents sinned against God and they had to be removed from his holy presence. So God removes them from the garden in this text. So Genesis 3, in one sense, you could write at the top of the heading of verse 16 to the end of the chapter, you could write paradise lost. Or in one sense, actually it might be even more accurate to say paradise forfeited. But let's go with paradise lost. So we see what that loss involves in three stages. Number one, the loss of harmony. Losing paradise meant the loss of harmony. You look, you look in verse 16. Now we'll come back and work through the, the passage beginning in verse 16. In verse 16, um, he writes, he said to the woman, I will intensify, so this is God, Speaking to the woman after they've sinned, I will intensify your labor pains. You will bear children with painful effort. Your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. So what does this mean? I will intensify your labor pains. And then this also this reference apparently to marriage. So remember the first task that was given to the humans. The first task given to Adam and Eve in the garden was be fruitful and multiply. So, in other words, what's happening here is a place of total blessing became a mixture of blessing and pain. And I say mixture because they're, they're still given the blessing of multiplying. But he says, while you're multiplying, your pain will be multiplied. So you're still gonna enjoy the blessing of family, the blessing of children. Those things aren't rescinded. The gift of family is not withdrawn. It's still there, but now it's injected with the fall, with a sense of pain and difficulty, right? So these words in verse 16, again, I think a better translation is, I will multiply your labor pains. If you have the English Standard Version, you see that. I will multiply your labor pains. And that's a good translation because it reminds you of the very same word that was used when he says, be fruitful and multiply. In other words, once we put these two texts together, it's God saying, while you're multiplying, your pain will be multiplied. So what's going on here? It speaks of pain in and around childbearing. So labor pains, which some in this room are very familiar. <laughs> That's a story, you don't have to read a Bible verse to find out labor pains are a real thing. You, you trust God's word because you've lived that. I, I heard about a young man who when his wife was in labor, he actually whispered verse 16 in her ear while she was giving birth. And he said, babe, you're experiencing this verse right now. Isn't that awesome? And uh, right, so I think he experienced the fall in all kinds of ways uh, in that moment. <laughs> all right, so st let me just stop for application. Guys, don't be dumb like that guy, right? So I almost mentioned his name. Uh, he's not on staff and uh, he's not on the elder council. But anyway, um, <laughs> verse 16, it, it involves labor pains, right? That's part of it but it's not limited to labor pains. It's about the pains of motherhood. It's about the pains of parenting. So we could talk for hours, right, about the blessings of motherhood, but honestly, it's not all blessings, right? Who, who weeps like a mother weeps? What sorrow is there in this world like a mother's sorrow? There are a thousand sorrows that mothers have faced since Genesis chapter three, including 
the kinds of pains and agonies that came through Genesis 3 that prevent motherhood, in, infertility, for example, or, or miscarriage, or kids who are sick, or kids that don't sleep, or the adoption journey and the foster care system, right? Children who walk away from the Lord, or maybe even walk away from you as their mother. You've invested in them, but then you're estranged from them, perhaps even through no fault of your own. These are a thousand sorrows of women who have been weeping since Genesis 3. Genesis 3 fingerprints are all over motherhood in this world. So loss is not just felt in parenting, but it speaks of hardship and conflict in marriage. So verse 16 is when you start talking about marriage. Your desire, this is speaking to Eve, the woman, your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. Now just stop there because that is a heavily contested Verse, everything described, I think we're on safe ground to assume that everything described there in verse 16 is a bad thing. This is, this is a result of the fall, right? It, the desire of the woman that's spoken of there, it's, it's, it's not a neutral or constructive desire for the good of her husband. And the rule of her husband is not servant leadership in the home. All this stuff is not good. This is a result of the fall, right? Your Bible might even translate if you have the English Standard Version or some other version, it might even translate verse 16, your desire shall be contrary to your husband or shall be against your husband. And the reason that some translations go that route is because this same construction in the original language of the Hebrew is only used in one other place in the Old Testament. It's in the very next chapter of Genesis, Genesis chapter four, and here's what it says. Chapter four, verse seven. God is speaking to Cain, and he says, if you do what is right, won't you be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. So that's the same exact kind of language that's used when it says your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. So sin's desire for Cain in Genesis 4 isn't kind of sin, sin's constructive desire to build him up. And Cain is told to conquer sin, not to be sin's servant leader, right? So everything that's going on in this passage is talking about what breaks as a result of the fall. Jen Wilkin, a, a wonderful author, she unpacks it this way. She will want to dominate him, he will want to dominate her. Instead of partnering together, they'll live in an adversarial relationship. So verse 16, in the real world, it doesn't mean every moment of her life she's gonna be grasping for control or that every moment of her life he's gonna be an intimidating force in the home. It just means marriage is gonna be hard from all sides. We're gonna have sinful impulses that we've gotta restrain now, right? That there are gonna be things that come all too naturally for us, for us to use our words and our power and tactics of various kinds to twist the other one in the wind and get them to do what we want them to do. Thanks the fall. Thanks Adam and Eve. Thanks for verse 16. That, because this is now our, our normal. We have to fight against these things, right? So, so one of the signs of paradise lost is the loss of harmony. Another is the presence of hindrance. Verse 17. Now he's gonna address the man. And he said to the man, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. Let me just pause for a second. That, 
language, because you listen to your wife, here comes this curse. That is uh, terribly abused and misunderstood. Uh, it's misused as if, to, as if that verse advances a theology of the capacities of women in general. As if it advances a theology of don't listen to your wife and don't listen to women in general. Generally, their opinions and advice are suspect. Look at Eve, right? That, that is not what that verse is saying. The reason they're in this mess is Eve listened to the serpent, Adam listened to Eve, and no one listened to God. The point isn't Eve per se is not wise or Eve is not trustworthy. The take home here for everyone, so we all get to play for a second, right? Let's just not talk about marriage. Let's talk to marrieds and unmarrieds. The take home here for everyone is when someone of either gender urges you to disobey the clear command of God, plug your ears. That, that's the take home for all of us. Okay, so, so back to Adam's confrontation in this moment where God is speaking to him. Verse 17 where God says, the ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you and you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground since you were taken from it for you are dust and you will return to dust. So Adam means Dust, basically. He was taken from the Adama, which means dust. So basically, his name is Dusty. That's his proper name, right? I, Dusty, take you, Eve, is the first marriage in the Bible. Right, so he's saying, you're gonna go back to the dust. You were taken from the dust. You're gonna go back to the dust. So it's a word of judgment to the woman and the man. And you put these words together of judgment and childbearing and judgment in marriage and judgment in work, and what do you see? You see this, the curse strikes at the core of their deepest calling. Be fruitful and subdue the earth. The fruitfulness is gonna be multiplied in pain and subduing the earth is gonna be difficult because the earth is gonna push back now. Right? Before the fall, the earth gave way. The earth welcomed the shovel. Right? They were doing horticulture, and agricultural type of work, and the earth just gave way. The earth was friendly. It was amenable to their work. Now the earth pushes back, right? So family is a blessing, but it's gonna be mixed with pain. Work is a blessing, but work is also from now on gonna be complicated. Work is gonna be frustrating from that point on. He's tasked to work the ground, and now the earth becomes an enemy. Earth becomes an enemy. The ground is gonna resist cultivation, and that's a metaphor really for all the frustrations of work of whatever kind, their work of a thousand different uh, varieties right here in this room, tasks that you're given to do on a weekly basis, and it's frustrating, right? There's frustration in our work. Technology is frustrating. I was preaching just two weeks ago, standing right here, and I got a calendar notification at the top of my screen and I went to swipe up and just get it off the screen so it's not blocking part of the screen, and I accidentally touched it, and now I'm looking at my calendar. And when I leave my manuscript, I get salty, just un, un, maybe heresy, right? So I'm just, I need to stay close to this thing, right? And at the moment, so at that moment, I'm, I'm thinking in my, in my mind, how do I get back to my notes? And while pretending, I remember where I was going next in this sermon, right? And all of that moment, I'm thinking, curse you, Genesis 3, because all of that is a result of things that come down as a result of Genesis 3. But beyond that, you ever feel the sense of the futility of your work? 
You ever, you ever come away from your work and just think, why am I even doing this? Like, is this making any difference right now? Um, Leonard Wolf, a major figure in 20th century British life, poet, prodigious author, and he wrote these words toward the end of his life. He said, I see clearly that I have achieved practically nothing. The world today and the history of the human anthill during the past 57 years would be exactly the same as it is if I had played ping pong instead of sitting on committees and writing books and memoranda. I have therefore to make a rather ignominious confession that I must have in a long life ground through between 150 to 200,000 hours of perfectly useless work. You know what it sounds a lot like? The book of Ecclesiastes. You read the book of Ecclesiastes, right? And you get this sense of the toil that we labor in under the sun. And what is it actually doing? It's not moving the needle of anything in the world or in my life, right? There's a sense of frustration. Just read Ecclesiastes and you can get that sense of frustration. Or if you don't have time to read Ecclesiastes tomorrow, go to work. Same effect. <laughs> there's this sense of there's a task that's set before you, but... What, what happens? You just lay out the number of things that you gotta do this week and watch what happens. There's gonna be, Genesis 3 is gonna, is gonna stick its head in the picture. It's gonna photobomb your week, right? Bulk trash was coming out last week and it was time for me to get it done before we traveled to Texas. And guess what? Of all days, my chainsaw won't start. It's like, oh, great, lost bulk trash. Thank you, Genesis 3, right? The frustrations, you're halfway through your FAFSA, online FAFSA application, federal student loans, right? This is a nightmare experience. You're almost all the way through it and your computer shuts down. And what do you want? You, you want, just Jesus, just take me now, right? That's, it's just this experience of tremendous frustration. Why am I doing this? Genesis 3's got its fingerprints on everything in your world all week long, right? So at the end of God's words to Adam, he, he tells Adam, you're gonna die. You are dust and you will return to dust. And interestingly, in our passage, this is when Adam names his wife. Up until now, we might not have noticed it, but she's just called the woman. And he's not gonna name her until now. In verse 20, you see it there, the man named his wife Eve, which means life bearer. He named her Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the theologians Many call this the first act of faith after the fall. Because right after God has told Eve and Adam the consequences of their sin, right after these words of judgment and right after the words of death, Adam still believes the promise from Genesis 3 verse 15 that the offspring of the woman, she will bear a life-giving son. The offspring of the woman will crush the head of the serpent, right? It's, it's as if Adam says, right after he's notified, you're gonna die, you will return to the dust, and Adam turns to Eve and he says, babe, we've made an awful mess. But not even sin is strong enough to break the promise of God. So I'm gonna name you life giver. I'm gonna name you life bearer. I'm gonna call you Eve so that we never forget the good promise that was made. When we're living in exile, 
when we're booted out of the garden, I'm gonna keep calling you this name so it reminds us of the promise that someone is coming who's gonna set things to right. And every time I call your name, the kids are gonna be reminded of the hope that we have in the future because of the promise of God. I'll call you Eve. Friends, that's still true here today. Where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. We've made an awful mess, but not even sin is strong enough to undo the promise of God. One of the signs of paradise lost is the loss of harmony. And then the other is the presence of whatever it was that I said on number two. (laughs) Technology, I'm telling you, right? And the third is the distance of God. (laughs) So this passage ends with a clothing scene and it ends with an exile scene. So we see there in verse 21, the Lord God made clothing from skins for the man and his wife and he clothed them. So you might say, I thought they had already clothed themselves. Yeah, they did clothe themselves, but it's pretty skimpy clothes. It's a fig leaf that they've got on, right? In chapter three, verse seven, they clothe themselves with fig leaves. And this is not going to work. This is not the long-term solution. God will not have them walking around his people in the garden, walking around dressed like trees, dressed like with fig leaves, right? We still do this. As fallen humans, we have 10,000 ways of dressing up and trying to cover our shame. We have 10,000 coping mechanisms that don't address the root problem. The message of Christianity, friends, is not God helps those who help themselves. It's the perfect opposite. The message of Christianity is God helps those who cannot help themselves. That's that's what we're seeing here, right? Since the garden, what's been happening? We've been, as humans, fallen humans, we've been grabbing every fig leaf under heaven to treat problems and shame that are so deep they can only be healed by the blood of Christ and by the patient, slow but steady, surgical work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So by the way, where do these animal skins come from? You think about that. Right after they sinned, on the worst day in human history, God has offered a sacrifice Some animal in the garden is dead now so that these people can be covered, so that they can be clothed. That's what's going on right here in the garden temple, right? This is the the temple after which the later tabernacle will be patterned. It's a garden sanctuary. God dwells in this place. They are priests to guard and to keep, right? We've seen all that as we walk through chapter two. This is a garden temple and the first sacrifice is offered in the first temple and it's offered by God himself. Why is it offered? Because the fig leaves will not do. God will cover their nakedness. Even though they've sinned against him, God takes the initiative. Grace makes the first move, right? The word for clothed here is associated with, uh, with the wearing of a robe in the rest of the Bible. A long tunic or a long robe. So what's the point? God robes his sinful children and completely covers their shame through the death of another that was offered in their place. And if that doesn't sound wonderfully familiar from what we'll read in the fullness of time of what Jesus provides for us through his sacrifice. Look, my my favorite thing about this study of Genesis one to three, 
My favorite thing every Sunday in this study is my favorite thing about every other Sunday in every other text. And it's, discover, it's to discover this, that right at the point of our greatest need, God presents our all-sufficient Savior. I hope that's your favorite thing to see from every text every Sunday. Christ shining out as the all-sufficient Savior. In our, we are wrapped in insufficiency, and here he comes clothed in gospel, and he clothes us in gospel grace and in robes of righteousness. There's a clothing scene, there's an exile scene. You see verse 22. The Lord God said, since the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, he must not reach out, take from the tree of life, eat and live forever. So the Lord God sent him away. There is the eviction, right? From the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove the man out and stationed the cherubim and the flaming whirling sword east of the garden of Eden to guard the way to the tree of life. The Bible is full of expulsions where the unholy are driven out of holy places. And that's what's happening here. The garden was infested with sin and what's God gonna do? He's not gonna uproot the garden. He's gonna uproot them. He doesn't move the garden. He moves the people. This is the first banishment, but it's also a type of many other banishments. You think of all the times in scripture where punishment for sin is some kind of expulsion. The angels who sinned against God and rose up in this coup to overthrow his throne and the angels are expelled. They are banished. Cain, in chapter four, will be banished. The Israelites themselves, after they live in the promised land, they sin against God, and they're gonna be carried off to exile. They're gonna be expelled from the good, the holy land. Excommunication of the unrepentant, 1 Corinthians chapter five, separate him from among you. Uh, a little leaven leavens the whole lump, so they're removing the unclean one. Final judgment of the wicked, where they're banished to outer darkness. It's death by exile. You see that pattern over and over in scripture, death by exile, and yet in a way it's a mercy, a severe mercy to be sure, but a mercy nonetheless. And that becomes clear, I think in the English Standard Version, you can see this really clearly. English Standard Version says it this way, now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. So you hear that, lest he reach out. We gotta kick Adam out of the garden so that he can't reach that tree and live forever. What does that mean? God doesn't even finish the sentence, but we know how to fill in the blanks. Lest Adam reach out and eat from the tree and live forever, Adam and Eve must be removed from the garden. So as Genesis unfolds, one of the things we see happening is God is shortening the years of people's lives. They're living for 900 and something years and then 800 and then 700. He's shortening the lifespans of humans because we weren't getting better with age, right? If we can become corrupt over the course of years, imagine being in a fallen world where everybody lives forever. That's why he says, lest they reach and partake of the fruit that makes you live forever. They have to be banished from the garden. If they're not banished from the garden, life becomes, life in this world is life on earth as it is in hell. Ongoing 
degeneration, moving further and further down, further and further away from God, but we're eating fruit that keep, makes us last forever. So they're, they're banished. And it's not death immediately the moment they eat the fruit. It's death by exile. Adam and Eve were driven out of the garden temple. The wonderful thing that we've seen all throughout the book of Genesis is how these arrows fly all the way over to the end of the Bible. The ones that are launched at the beginning of the Bible fly over to the end of the Bible. So the book of Revelation would speak about people partaking again of the tree of life. But only after another Adam has come who would undo the curse. And so here as we conclude our study of the first three chapters, we see this again. In the darkest places of the Bible, there are hints of gospel hope. So another Adam would come, the second Adam, the last Adam would come, and he would undo the curse by becoming a curse. Galatians, the Apostle Paul writes this in Galatians 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us because it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Jesus comes in the fullness of time, the anointed one, as the last Adam. He is the offspring of the woman. He's going to crush the serpent's head as the serpent bruises his heel. He will triumph over the serpent by his own suffering. And he's going to be the head of a new humanity because the old template was broken. So he's going to open a new way to be human in him. The first Adam is driven out of God's holy garden to die. The last Adam is driven out of God's holy city, Jerusalem, to die outside the gates of the city. You see these patterns, right? Back in the garden, here in Genesis 3, God places this cherubim with a fiery sword at the east of Eden, and it's to keep them from entering from the east. Well, you would enter the temple from the east as well, so this is a representation. Matter of fact, later on, when they build the tabernacle, they, they, God tells them, install this massive curtain that blocks the way from people to enter into my holy presence. And on the curtain, embroider massive cherubim facing east so they can't come. So they're reminded of Eden. Remember when you broke it? Remember when you broke the world and you couldn't come into my holy presence? And the tabernacle is a reminder. The curtain on the tabernacle reminds them of that. So Adam and Eve are rejected from this garden temple. You know the first temple cleansing in your Bible isn't in the pages of the Gospels. It's in Genesis 3. God is cleaning house. Zeal for his house has consumed him and he is cleaning the temple. He drives them out. When human sin defiles God's temple in Genesis 3, God does two things. A sacrifice is offered to cover the sins of the people and the temple is cleansed. And so it should be no surprise that when we see the last Adam, Jesus Christ, arrive, he too finds the temple in shambles. And so what does he do on Holy Week? He cleanses the temple and then a sacrifice is offered to cover the sins of his people. Most amazingly, as he's offering himself as the sacrifice, he cries out, it is finished. And what happens? The curtain with the cherubim embroidered on it that curtain that reminded them you can't come in here, that curtain was torn in two from top to bottom, telling the people that the way back to Eden is open. The way back to the presence of God is open. The first time since Genesis 3 we can go in. How? 
the offspring of the woman, that life bearer, Mary, gave birth to a son. And that son, Jesus, approached the flaming sword at the east of Eden. And the flaming sword of God's judgment was sheathed into the heart of the son. And the body of Jesus Christ extinguished the flame of God's wrath and opened the way to mercy. That's called a gospel. That's good news, right? No, no wonder in heaven we wear robes. We are clothed, clothed in robes, clothed in robes of white. And no wonder in heaven there's one robe that isn't white. Revelation 19 describes someone who comes who is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. That red robe explains all the white robes. One sacrifice clothes countless millions in robes of righteousness that never wear out. So we use clothing and sacrifice. You think about that, there's an old hymn that leads the church in some gloriously reflective questions. Are you washed in the blood? (laughs) In the soul-cleansing blood of the lamb? Are your garments spotless? Are they white as snow? Are you washed in the blood of the lamb? And all those questions are hinting at what? You can be. You can be washed. Your garments can be spotless. You can be white as snow. Your fig leaves, friends, aren't covering what you think they cover. The only answer to guilt and shame has been provided. Find it in Christ. Find it this morning in Christ. So clothing and sacrifices and a way back home. In in Luke chapter 23, right before that curtain is torn, opening access to the presence of God. We see Jesus, he's hanging between two criminals and one of the criminals is mocking him and the other one says, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, remember me. How's that for a simple, inelegant sinner's prayer? Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, remember me. And Jesus says what? In verse 43 of that chapter, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in Eden. It's the same word that's used in Genesis two and three in paradise. I'm reopening Eden momentarily and I'll meet you at the gate. I'll meet you right there. Won't be any cherubim, no flaming sword. I'll see you at the entrance to paradise. Friends, much was lost in the Garden of Eden, the pain that we feel in our lives. In one way or another, it all leads back, traces back to Genesis chapter three, but what was lost has now been regained. In part, we experience it now. Not in full, but in part. As believers, we experience it now, the inheritance of all who trust him. Here's the beauty, though. In Christ, friend, you are not locked outside. Hebrews chapter 10 says, you got access. You can come boldly through the veil, enter behind the curtain that the forerunner has made a way for us to enter in and to enter in boldly, our hearts having been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Come on in, you can dwell with God. Again, there's a way back to the garden. C.S. Lewis, he would say in that article, sometimes you get, when you make it into that inner ring, he said, sometimes we have the terrible instinct of closing the door behind us because we want to be, now that we're in the exclusive club, it has to be exclusive or else why'd we even want to get in? Not us. All right, we step inside the kingdom of God open for us through Christ and we invite others. We leave the door open. Genesis, friends, holds up this great God who is worth trusting, 
who is worth obeying, who is good, and we exist to know him and to make him known.